We find ourselves this Lord's Day in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Courage is not an optional virtue in the character of a Christian. Along with love, faithfulness, contentment, humility, and holiness, all Christians are likewise to be bold in the Lord. Perhaps there are a few misconceptions about courage that should first be cleared away. First, biblical courage is not rude, harsh, or inconsiderate of others. The Lord Jesus was certainly bold, but He was also gentle, compassionate, and gracious even to the undeserving. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, was said of the Lord, prophesied of the Lord, and fulfilled by the Lord in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. In fact, the bully who harshly pushes around those weaker than himself is not courageous at all, but in fact cowardly. Second, biblical courage is not the absence of all fear. To the contrary, biblical courage is fearing God more than you fear any person or circumstance. There was written on the grave stone of a certain Lord Lawrence who was buried in Westminster Abbey the following, He feared man so little because he feared God so much. Biblical courage, dear ones, recognizes that fears are common to all of us. However, biblical courage will not be mastered and controlled by those fears. For the living God is our defense. The living God is our strength. The living God is our refuge. As the psalmist says in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Third, biblical courage is not exercised in an unrighteous cause. For biblical courage can only shine forth when we stand for the cause of Christ. Whereas standing for error or standing for sin, that is not biblical courage, but rather that is simply worldly defiance. Fourth, biblical courage is not just for ministers, elders, godly magistrates, or soldiers fighting in a just war. Biblical courage is for the housewife and mother. Biblical courage is for the husband and the father. Biblical courage is for the child, the student, the office manager, the contractor, the computer analyst, and the engineer. We find in Proverbs 28.1, there is no limitation upon courage. 
The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Not particular vocations that the righteous might hold, but the righteous taking it in all those who are righteous have given to them along with all of the other graces which God gives to His people, they are given as well the grace of biblical courage. It as well as the grace of humility, of contentment, of faith. All of those were purchased by Christ for His people. Thus we can summarize, dear ones, what biblical courage is in this statement. Biblical courage is fearing, reverencing, honoring, esteeming, and loving the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and His truth more than any person or circumstance. This Lord's Day, we shall consider from our text in Mark 6, verses 14 through 29, the consummate coward and the consummate braveheart. Herod the coward and John the Baptist the braveheart. The main points from the text are these. First, the fears of Herod in Mark 6, verses 14 through 16. Secondly, the courage of John the Baptist, Mark 6, verses 17 through 18. And third, the cowardliness of Herod, Mark 6, verses 19 through 29. Let us consider then first the fears of Herod, Mark 6, verses 14 through 16, where we read, And King Herod heard of him. For his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or is one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. <clears throat> the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Why did the wicked flee when no man pursueth? They flee from the guilt of their own conscience which relentlessly hounds them and haunts them. They may seek to drown that guilty conscience in work, in pleasure, in booze, in the family even, or even in the church. But at night when they are all alone, just them and their conscience, the fearful judgment of God chases them. You know, Adam knew no fear till he sinned against God and became a guilty creature. When God sought Adam after he had partaken of the forbidden fruit, he asked Adam, Where art thou? 
Adam replied, I was afraid because I heard thy voice in the garden and I hid myself. Dear ones, if we are mastered by our fears, I submit to you it is due to the following three offenses. First of all, a wounded conscience. That is, there is a sin which we are not willing to give up and forsake in our lives. That will produce fear. Secondly, a neglect of communion with Christ through fervent prayer and faithful feeding on His Word. When we are far away from Christ, yes, we will be fearful. But to be near Christ, to enjoy Christ, is to be in a place of refuge and safety and security. And so to the degree that we are closer to Christ and enjoying Christ to that degree, we will be more courageous and bold and less less fearful. And thirdly, that which I would submit to you would be a third offense that will keep us from enjoying that courage is a lack of trust. A lack of trust in an absolutely trustworthy God. A God who cannot fail. A God who cannot lie. A God who has all power at His disposal. A God who loves with His infinite love the people that He has chosen to be His own. A lack of trust means that if we're not trusting God, we are trusting man. We are trusting in something in this life. And we have every reason then to be afraid if our trust is not in God. Herod Antipas, in our passage here, was fleeing when no man pursued him as we begin this section of Mark chapter 6. Herod the Great, who was his father, had murdered the male babies, you'll recall, in Bethlehem in hopes of disposing of Christ, the King of Kings. And now his son, Herod Antipas, has murdered the faithful witness of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. We often think of Stephen as the first Christian martyr. Well, I would submit to you that John the Baptist was the first Christian martyr. He who witnessed the faithful testimony to Jesus Christ. The blood of John, like that of Abel, was crying unto God for justice to be served against Herod. And that cry did not escape the hearing of Herod's conscience. When Herod Antipas heard of all the various views that were being circulated amongst the people as to the identity of Jesus Christ, Herod concluded that Christ was John the Baptist reincarnated. Now, some were saying that Christ was Elijah come to life. 
Others thought he was another prophet that had formerly lived and now was come to life, or that he was one of the prophets that would, that would precede the manifestation of the Messiah. But Herod's guilt chased him into believing that it was in fact John the Baptist who had surely risen from the dead and now had assumed the body of this man Jesus. For Herod was unwilling to confess his sin to God. Herod was unwilling to commune with the living God and Herod was unwilling to place his trust in the living God alone as his help and as his salvation. And therefore, he was pursued with a guilty conscience and led into a fear that said, John the Baptist has risen and now lives in this man, Jesus. You know, Herod's fears, dear ones, are the lot of all who turn away from Christ. Fears consume those who turn away from Christ. People may not outwardly confess their fears, those who turn away from Christ, but dear ones, they live in various types of fear. There is no peace, the Lord says, to the wicked. There is only restlessness, discontentment, heartache, and fear. And I would ask you, why? Why would you trade that purchased benefit from Christ of a peace that surpasses all understanding? for wallowing in some besetting sin or for neglecting communion with Christ through earnest daily prayer and meditation upon His Word or for the faithfulness of the sovereign God who has turned enemies of God into His own sons. Why would you trade the fears and the turning away from Christ for these benefits? How much I would ask you, dear ones, how much do you desire to be set free from your fears today? I've suggested and submitted to you ways in which you can see your fears brought under the mastery of God's grace. Pursue it with all of your heart. Why would you choose to continue in your fears when you can be set free from those fears? The second main point, the courage of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. <clears throat> For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Beginning with Mark 6, verse 17, we have a flashback, as it were, 
whereby we learn how it was that John the Baptist became the first martyr for Jesus Christ. Essentially, John was murdered by Herod because he would not cower in fear before the king by compromising the truth of God. Even as Athanasius would not compromise the truth, though all the world stood against him. Even as Luther would not offend neither the truth of Christ nor his conscience before the Diet of Worms. Even as Knox and Melville chose the smile of God over the frown of Queen Mary and King James. Even so, John the Baptist courageously stood for the truth, even if it meant he must stand against a king. For he feared, reverenced, esteemed, and loved the Lord his God more than any man. The truth of God in this instance, which brought John the Baptist into a direct conflict with Herod, was over Herod's incestuous marriage to Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Herod and his sister-in-law, Herodias, had conspired together while Herod was visiting in Rome, according to the account that is given in, in Josephus. And they had conspired that they would divorce uh, one another's, their own spouses, in order to be united with one another in marriage. This was a, a clear violation of God's law according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, wherein we find this prohibition. And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. The only exception to that law was when a man died childless. In that case, his nearest relative was to take up the responsibility of, and I should say the nearest single unmarried male relative was to take up the responsibility of marrying now this widow. And the, the first child born was to become the heir who would carry on the father's name who had died. This we find as far as teaching and instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. Now Herod's problem in regard to this incestuous relationship was that he had taken the wife of his living brother not the wife of his deceased brother. Thus, God forbade this particular marriage. This was prohibited by the Lord. And it was not only prohibited to Israel, but it was prohibited to all the nations. This was a part of God's moral commandments. It was not a part of the ceremonial law. So we turn to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, 
I won't turn there at this time. But there you'll find that God says, and he lists in the previous chapter, not only incestuous relationships, but he mentions even sodomy, and he mentions bestiality, and he says, all these things defile you, as they defiled the nations which occupied the land previous to you. In other words, these are moral commandments. God has not restricted these commandments to Israel alone. And this prohibition that we find, this, this particular prohibition in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, and the one which John the Baptist approaches Herod concerning, not only pertains to those who are in a direct bloodline, direct blood relations, but it also forbids marriage to those who are in various in-law relations as well. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 24, section 4, has preserved the teaching of Scripture on the matter when it declares, marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity, that is, blood relations, or affinity, that is, in-law relations, forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife, the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. To the shame and reproach of backslidden nations and churches today, the same condemnation brought by John against Herod must be leveled against all those who have removed in-law relations, relations of affinity from the list of prohibited marriages. John said, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Not because she is your blood sister, because she is the wife of your brother. John's faithful testimony was not merely for the truth, but I would suggest to you against the manifest errors and sins of nations and churches today. Love for others, dear ones, compels us, drives us to not only affirm the truth, but to speak against by way of testimony to nations and churches and individuals concerning the truth of Christ and the error or the sin in which others are living. The love of God, the love for the, those people compels us to say something. Leviticus chapter 19 Verse 17 very clearly tells us concerning 
such a love. When it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Now, how would one display a hatred of a brother in his heart? What is one way that one would display such a hatred for a brother in his heart? Listen. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If you do not, when you see a brother who is walking in some manifest sin or error, and you do not point out to him in love that error or sin, the Lord says that you are not loving that brother in your heart, but in fact you are hating that brother in your heart. And so, as a faithful church, we are compelled to speak against the unfaithfulness of others. That is to show love. It is not said in a spirit of vengeance, of bitterness, of hatred. It is said, and it ought always to be said, and only be said in a spirit of love for brethren. We must sincerely desire reconciliation in the truth when we do point out the errors of others or our witness is not true and faithful, but rather pure hypocrisy. What we say may be accurate, but we've approached it entirely hypocritically. This courageous stand by John the Baptist now did not please either Herod or Herodias. But especially it did not please Herodias. For his faithful testimony, he was cast into prison. For his faithful testimony, he suffered. For his faithful testimony, he was ultimately martyred. Dear ones, here is where biblical courage is put to the test. What are you willing to give up for Christ and all His truth? Are you willing to give up family, close friends, jobs, homes, wealth, the honor of men, your personal freedoms, and even life itself. It is not merely, dear ones, the martyr who is called upon to be courageous and fear God more than any man. It is each of us who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone that is called exercise that kind of courage because that is how courage is manifested. What are you willing to sacrifice for Christ and His cause? If we cannot boldly stand for Christ and His truth when it means suffering the loss of a comfort or a convenience in this life, how will we possibly stand for Christ and His truth if Christ should call us to suffer the loss of our lives. 
Who do you fear and reverence more? God or man? Whose praise do you esteem more highly? God or man? Whose love and friendship can you not live without? God or man? Is this your sincere prayer? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. I pray that's your prayer. I pray that you sincerely desire that with everything within your heart, to die the death of the righteous. The faithful covenanted Presbyterian martyr, Christopher Love, went to the scaffold suffering for his faith in the covenanted cause with this testimony of boldness in Christ upon his lips and in his heart. I'm not only a Christian and a preacher, but whatever men judge I am, a martyr too. I speak it without vanity. Would I have renounced my covenant and debauched my conscience and ventured my soul there might have been hopes of saving my life. That I should not have come to this place. But blessed be my God, I have made the best choice. I have chosen affliction rather than sin. And therefore welcome scaffold and welcome axe and welcome block and welcome death and welcome all because it will send me to my Father's house. I have great cause to magnify God's grace that he hath stood by me during mine imprisonment. It hath been a time of no little temptation to me, yet blessed be his grace. He hath stood by me and strengthened me. I magnify His grace that though now I come to die a violent death, yet that death is not a terror to me. Through the blood of sprinkling, fear of death is taken out of my heart. God is not a terror to me. Therefore, death is not dreadful to me. That's from a clear vindication of the principles and practices of Christopher Love, pages 74 and 75. Dear parents, teaching your children how to defend themselves is fine, but that is not necessarily teaching them biblical courage. Teaching a man how to handle a gun or a knife or a sword may have its rightful place, but that is not necessarily teaching a man or a child how to be courageous. How do you teach courage? Courage is our willingness again, 
our willingness to sacrifice all for the sake of Jesus Christ. What are you teaching your children in regard to that truth? What are you teaching your children with regard to that truth by your lives as parents? Do they see by your speech that you're willing to forsake those besetting sins in your lives? Do they see by your actions and by your deeds that you're willing to forsake all things to follow Christ? You see, your example to your children of what true biblical courage is, not this macho image of John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, but biblical courage that we find in Jesus Christ that we find in John the Baptist, that we find in the Apostle Paul, that we find in Abel, in Noah, in the prophets of old. Those are our examples and all of those faithful witnesses who have stood for the truth throughout history. Our third and final point, the cowardice of Herod. Mark chapter 6, verses 19 through 29. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. <clears throat> and the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. <clears throat> a faithful witness for Jesus Christ will sooner or later incur the wrath and hostility of the world and even of other professing Christians. 
Herodias wanted John and his testimony for the truth of God to be silenced. In Mark 6, verses 17 and 19. But Herod preserved the life of John, for he knew that John was a faithful witness of God. He knew he was a holy man, that he was just. Although Herod did not conform his ways to the law of God, he knew that what John spoke was true and even gladly, the scripture says, heard him preach. Now, I've noted in a previous sermon that even the unbelieving can find things about the Word of God in which they can intellectually or emotionally rejoice. But that in which the unbeliever cannot rejoice apart from the sovereign work of God's grace in his heart is submission to the authority of God and His Word over every area of one's life. That an unbeliever cannot, nor will not, nor desires not to do. Neither did Herod. The unbeliever wants to pick and choose the parts of God's Word in which to delight and the parts in which not to delight. The believer delights in all of God's truth. This selected delight in certain doctrines and practices of Scripture and not in all of the doctrines and practices of Scripture is also the sad lot of many who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Many professing Christians will rejoice in what they call the fundamentals of the faith upon which all professing Christians may be said to agree. But they do not rejoice in the difficult truths of Scripture which bring them into conflict with friends, family members, co-workers, or other professing Christians. They do not rejoice in those truths. I would submit to you, dear ones, it is the act of a coward like Herod to reject or to rejoice truths of God rather than in all the truths of God. However, it is the act of a brave heart like John the Baptist to rejoice in all the truths of God even the most difficult and unpopular ones, to rejoice in them no matter how hard they may be, how much against the grain of society they may be, no matter what conflicts they may bring us into with others who profess faith in Christ, we must rejoice in all of the testimony, in all of the counsel of God. Because even in those particular truths that we would put outside of the fundamentals, the same authority of God undermines them, or uh, not undermines, but upholds them, and girds them about as the fundamentals, the same authority of God, not a less authority of God. 
And so, we ought to rejoice as we come to acknowledge and believe that the Word of God teaches the singing of only psalms and without accompaniment. That the Word of God teaches that we are not to celebrate holy days. The Word of God teaches that we are not to worship occasionally in other churches that have a different faith with regard to doctrine, worship, and government than our own. But we ought to rejoice in the covenants which our forefathers, standing upon the word of God, have taken. We ought to rejoice in all of those particular truths which the Lord has given to us, no matter how hard and difficult. John the Baptist was willing to stand courageously for that unpopular truth. So must we be. Just as the harlot Herodias sought to silence and did eventually silence the testimony of John, so the Romish harlot likewise seeks to silence the effort and through the efforts of the man of sin to silence the testimony of faithful witnesses according to Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. But the Lord will cause his truth always to be victorious. Though one generation of faithful witnesses die, they will come alive again in a succeeding generation. God's truth will not fall to the ground. We never have to fear that for which we stand is going to be lost if even the leaders, the pastors, the elders should die. God's truth will continue and it will prevail. Note how the cowardliness of Herod was manifested in the death of John. At his birthday party, Herodias plotted a way to put Herod on the spot before all of his friends and associates. She sent her daughter to dance before Herod and his guests. Now, it was unheard of for a prince of this stature, someone of this stature to go in and to dance in this kind of a context. This was the type of activity that they would call, let's say, women who had a lot less virtue to do, but not someone who supposedly had the class of that of a princess. No doubt the seductive charm of the daughter of Herodias and the wine of revelry combined to lessen the moral senses of Herod, which were already greatly dull. So that when she had completed her dance, Herod granted her a request up to half of his kingdom and swore by way of an oath, which means to, to invoke the name of God, that he would give her whatever she asked. Herod had fallen now into the snare which Herodias had set to do away with John the Baptist. After consulting with her mother, the daughter of Herodias asked for the head of John the Baptist and to show the mockery that Herodias had the 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 
lack of respect in any regard for John the Baptist. She had it brought in a charger or a dish that you would put a meal in. As to say, here is a tasty delicacy. The head of a faithful martyr of Christ. Various accounts say that when she received the, the head of John the Baptist, she took a needle out and pricked his tongue for the words that he had spoken. Hatred for the martyrs of Christ and the faithful witnesses of Christ. Dear ones, all we have to do is to stand not only for the truth, but against the sins and the errors of the age. And we will be equally despised. Here is where we see so clearly the consummate coward, Herod, pretending to be honorable by keeping his oath he has John beheaded. Even as Pilate could not wash away the guilt of Christ's blood from his hands, so Herod could not escape the blood of John by falling back on a sinful oath which he had no obligation to keep. In order to save face before his guests, in order not to look foolish, in order to honor man more than God, he played the coward. He kept his promise and sacrificed John's life. Herod's sinful promise, dear ones, did not oblige him to sin against Christ or against his truth. As our confession of faith says in chapter 23, section 4 and 7, it teaches, an oath cannot oblige to sin, nor can any man vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded. We have heard recently that when people from another congregation, having been challenged with the truth, of Jesus Christ come to conviction that the church in which they are now presently a member uh, or part of is, a, is an unfaithful church and they desire to leave that church, it is now we hear being circulated that they are violating membership vows. Dear ones, if in fact what they vowed to uphold was sinful in the first place, it was not a vow that did obligate them. Furthermore, whoever heard a Christian taking a vow that has no limitations? Oaths and vows are always taken with a qualification in the Lord, insofar as it is agreeable to the Word of God. It is ridiculous, dear ones. It is hypocrisy for those same churches that would say that their members have violated their membership vows, receive members from other churches who have taken vows to those churches, but have moved in their, in their growth in Christ to understand the truth. It is gross hypocrisy. 
cowards are men and women of convenience and expediency. They do what is in their own best interests. Whereas brave hearts are men and women of principle and conviction. They do what is in the best interest of Christ's kingdom according to His revealed will. Beloved, nothing is more important in all of the world than upholding the truth of Jesus Christ. There are other things that we could put alongside of it, but nothing is more important than upholding the truth, being faithful to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we cannot uphold Christ, dear ones, if we do not uphold His truth. How can we be upholding Christ if we, in our actions and in our, in our words we are denying what Christ teaches? So the question is not whether we are attacked as being a cult, as being separatists, heretics, or anti-Christian. Yes, those attacks may come and will come and have come. Those who have stood for the truth of Christ in the past have endured exactly the same kind of treatment and far worse. Listen to the following words of one who knew what it was to hear such slander. He says, we pray for the coming of his kingdom and praise him that the number of those that seek the Lord in Scotland are not diminished, but grow even under evil shepherds and lazy feeders, which is the lily among the thorns. Though we go under the name of protesters, separatists, hypocrites, unpeaceable, implacable spirits, are made as the filth of the world and the off-scourings of all things, yea, troubled on every side, in the streets, pulpits, in divers' synods, presbyteries, etc., more than under prelacy, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. The words of Samuel Rutherford from the preface in a survey of the survey of that summer church discipline. Today, dear ones, let us take courage from Christ who is himself the faithful and true witness and who so endured the shame of the cross, the taunts of men, the suffering of body and soul, and made the good confession of faith before Pilate. He has set an example for us, and we are to walk in his steps. It is he, dear ones, that has promised in Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He who is most courageous is the one who is willing to sacrifice most for Christ and his cause. That's true courage. Please stand with me in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee this day, for Thou hast reminded us of the grace of courage which we so desperately need in these dark times. O Lord, we pray that Thou would grant to us that we would fear and reverence and esteem, honor and love Thee more than any man. We pray, Father, that Thou would cause us to see that is not it is not uh, uh, how many hours that we have spent learning self-defense or lifting weights or or uh, learning how to shoot a gun. All of those things being perfectly uh, right in and of themselves. But nevertheless, it is not those things by which we determine the courage of a man or a woman or a child. But it is in our desire and our willingness to stand for Christ at all costs. Fill us, O Lord, with that courage that John exemplified as he stood before Herod. Let us, O Lord, not be like the coward Herod who compromised the truth, who knew the truth and compromised it to save face. O Lord, we pray that Thou would uphold us and that Thou would cause Thy testimony to go forth with all faith, and confidence in Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.